HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the fellas of Huertas, a wonderful new Basque restaurant in the East Village, Jonah Miller and Nate Adler. Thank you for being in studio. So I was, I was lucky enough to be invited to one of the preview, Asturian, is that how you say it? Um, Cider House Dinners. Uh, it's like a, a family style, you know, like large plate dinner, uh, a few courses. Um, lots and lots of cider, which was wonderful. Homemade vermouths, um, which I think is the best deal in New York right now. I mean, I was so blown away, not just with the, the quantity of, of food and beverage hitting the table, but the quality and thoughtfulness and just overall sense of a complete meal. Now, you're two New York boys. Am, am I correct about that? Yep. What are you doing cooking Basque cuisine? Um, well, yeah, we grew up in the city, and I, in a sense, grew up cooking. I'm always being drawn to food, but started working in kitchens when I was 14. And at that time, uh, this was about 12, 13 years ago, Spain was right at the forefront of, of modern cooking. Uh, and that was a little bit baffling that we in New York were years behind the things that were, they were doing in Spain. So I was intrigued by the modern cooking in spain and then in, in college studied abroad in madrid and that sort of cooking was sort of unattainable and unaffordable uh for a college student so it wound up eating at the you know the typical local pincho spots and tapas spots and realized we didn't have a lot of this in new york and uh cooking in italian restaurants here in new america and realizing that we didn't necessarily need 
what will we add to the to the New York dining scene by opening another one of those restaurants? But really, um, there was a void in bringing Spain back to New York, and certainly there are Spanish restaurants in New York and some very good ones. But we wanted to push the boundaries a little more of bringing a sense of of Spain, uh, what it feels like to dine in Spain and, and to sit at a table in Spain or mill about in a bar, and and hopefully we're um, you know, offer offering a transporting experience to our guests. Absolutely, and I'm. Not saying that you guys are childish in any way, but you are you are young. <laughs> you are under 30. Um, and there's this, you know, sense of childlike fun that happens at Huertas. You know, there's this... You guys are very dedicated people, but there's this, this look and feel that only someone so enthralled and so excited and has... You know, the, the the heart of a child can actually recreate. It's 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 a business, but it's not business oriented. Yeah. So I think when we traveled to Spain, and I had an opportunity to go there about a couple of years after Jonah did, um, and take a look at what's going on out there. And Jonah had an idea to bring the Pincho bars of San Sebastian and Bilbao to New York City. So we wanted to translate that to an authentic experience in New York. But the problem was in Spain, you went up to the bar and the pinchos actually sat there. You would grab them off the tray at, at the bar and then you would tell the barman at the end of your meal, well, I had three of these and they'd charge you for it. Well, in New York City, that's a little bit difficult <laughs> to execute. You don't, you don't believe in the honor system here? <laughs> yeah, well, the honor system is not um, so honorable in New York City, I'd yeah. say. <laughs> and so what we did to try to translate that into a, a more youthful approach was... Um, take what we had experienced as children growing up in New York, eating dim sum all the time, and then some of the guys out in San Francisco, like State Bird for Provisions, that had done that with other cuisines than um, Chinese food, and bring that experience to the guest uh, tableside. So uh, we have a little scorecard on the tables. We bring the pinchos around, as we call it, dim sum style, or we call them past pinchos. And every night you, you get to... Um, have a choice of eight of those and uh, a young woman or gentleman will come over and give you an opportunity to see all of them before you choose which ones you'd like. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about growing up in New York and eating in the way that you did because we kind of glossed over that because Jonah, you said you started working in kitchens at what, 14? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly I was lucky to to know what I wanted to do at that point and also be in the right place to attack that. Um, But, uh, you know, I also fell into the right places. I was 13, and so was my, my closest friend at the time, who was actually the connection between Nate and I as well. He grew up in the same building as Nate, and for his bar mitzvah, he got a gift card to eat at Chanterelle. So we had dinner at Chanterelle. Uh, I guess I, we were both still 13 at the time, and certainly wasn't typical for them to have two 13-year-old boys uh, sitting down for dinner at one of the best restaurants in the country really at that time. So they you know, asked what we were doing there. We explained that the at that time the Food Network was really taking off, and um, you know certainly we those were the programs we watched. We explained that we like to cook, and they invited us to look at the kitchen. So David Waltuck, the chef and owner, and his wife Karen showed us around the kitchen, and we wrote back uh, after the meal saying thanks so much. Is it any way we could actually intern here over the summer, or for whatever reason it's usually called extern in kitchens, I guess because it's usually the the last part of a cooking school program. But at any rate, we spent two summers cooking there. Um, so that's how I first got into kitchen. That's a pretty unusual place to start. Um, I mean, it, it makes sense that the better the restaurant, the more in need they are of free labor and some, some hands to do easy tasks. 
but starting there at very high-end cooking, but also in a very relaxed environment, a sort of family-run environment, um, where volume was never the priority, um, was sort of a, the right nurturing place. If you start in the wrong place, you're, you're not going to continue on that track. Yeah. I mean, David Waltuck is, mm-hmm. is such a kind and soft-spoken person. I mean, I can see him endearing himself more so to, you know, someone that didn't go to cooking school or someone at, at, at that age rather than, you know, a seasoned veteran, a professional that's kind of floated around. Um, It's funny to take that and then look at Nate, who in college started his own business venture, his first all about deliverable foods. Yeah, sure. So I guess I took a different track than Jonah did to this business, but we're coming together at the right time. And what happened for me was that I was in business school, uh, undergraduate in Philadelphia, and all of my friends and uh, in the school were going towards finance and consulting, which was the natural trajectory of um, any student uh, of, at that time. And I took an internship doing that same thing and found myself back in New York City where I grew up and having a little bit more time uh, to go out to eat here when I was an adult and uh, survey the dining scene. And I actually took a notebook with me when I went out to eat. I started reading uh, I read Danny Meyer's Setting the Table. I read Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen, Kitchen Confidential um, and started to think about it a little bit more seriously, um, realizing that if I was going to do something in business, I'd like to do something that I was passionate about. Um, and I actually was cooking more of a hobby than Jonah uh, from a young age. In fact, when uh, Jonah and his best friend Nat, who are mutual connection, they had a catering company together. Uh, in high school, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, we actually we did some we did a wedding out here in, in Bushwick in high school um, for 120 people or so. So that that uh, I'm surprised people trusted us yeah. to do that. You know, I parlayed my bar mitzvah into an acoustic electric guitar and a crappy <laughs> high school band, and you got a you got a career out of yours. Well, it might have led to you know spawn some interest for you as well. Yeah. <laughs> so in the catering company, I actually. I guess you could call it, I did a stage a couple of times, and they had me chopping vegetables and uh, experienced what, what it meant to really cook with some, some uh, amateur professionals at the time. Um, and so when I was home for that summer and looking around and taking restaurants a lot more seriously, I went back to school and found myself a professor that was willing to sponsor an independent study for me. And what came of that was actually uh, the idea to build a business plan and financial model for a new business on the school's campus. Um, and the business model was sort of the food truck model, except without the actual truck. So we found a proprietary kitchen. I hired a chef. Everything happened to come together. And next thing you know, we actually opened a business that was delivering home-cooked meals to college students um, that were wholesome and reminiscent of um, mothers and fathers cooking, which is really what college kids want not pizza and uh, chicken wings and bagels every day yeah i mean it's amazing how ahead of the game you were and you see a couple of these things like quincible like blue apron but you still have to cook them so it's almost like taking seamless straight from your parents house (laughs) yeah exactly you should just set up this network of parents that you know uh their children have flown the coop or are no longer living at home but still want to cook family style just get a portion or two and 
yeah, I think I think it's still a pretty good idea. Yeah. It's something that maybe you know, talk about future aspirations ten years down the line. Like, yeah. who knows what will happen? But uh, it was it was a ton of fun, and it was my first foray into restaurants before I had actually ever worked in one uh, myself. So, you read Danny Meyer's book, and you later found yourself in one of his restaurants. That's correct. Front of the house, both of us did yeah. actually. And is that where you guys reconnected? Um, not. I mean, we never worked together uh, at Union Square Hospitality Group, but certainly we were there at the same time, so there'd be opportunities to cross paths. Um, I think actually. I remember Nate had invited um, me as well as our friend Nat, who we've now mentioned a few times, to eat. Uh, they were doing a beer pairing dinner at Blue Smoke, and um, I remember you know, I was I had left Mylena where I was and was working on opening where it's us. And I remember feeling as if Nate was feeling me out to see if there was an opportunity there. Um, and I didn't really I had I wasn't taking him seriously at that time. I sort of felt like, how dare this kid? Is he trying to? Is he thinking I'm going to offer him a job? Um, but then we started talking, and uh, you know, at this point, it's certainly one of the best decisions we've I've made. Um, but uh, that's when I think that the conversation started for us to do something together, um, and certainly sort of a shared dialogue of um, sort of hospitality that we learned in that company um, has been very helpful. I appreciate earlier that you said that where it does felt like a very youthful place and energetic, and I think that's um, you know hopefully natural because we are young, but also is very. Um, conscientious and, and something that we've worked towards uh, coming from a Danny Meyer background we're all about sort of building a place that feels warm and uh, worn and a place where you know you can imagine you were there five years ago even though it wasn't open and we've you know at times struggled but um, I think improved at finding that balance between being a you know a young new restaurant but also becoming a warm neighborhood place um, and certainly the look of the restaurant, that was one of the main things we were trying to create is a place that doesn't seem like it's new. It uh, doesn't feel like you're walking into a new restaurant. And we, we do actually have guests who come in and think that they've been there before. And they say, yeah, years ago I came here. And, yeah, I know. I questioned um, myself when I introduced it as a new place in the East Village. I'm like, wait, how long has it actually been open? It's that weird New York thing, too, when something closes and something's opens, so you forget what was there and you forget how long what is there currently has has housed you know that space yes one came in and i said i love the ribs here (laughs) Um, we were confused and she said well i i got them i get them at takeout um so yes the spaces blend together i think she was thinking of uh mighty quins which is yeah (laughs) a a block away but yeah the physical spaces in new york um often are long narrow uh you know small storefronts and uh you know hopefully we we've differentiated ourselves from the pack and the way we look but also are happy to you know, feel like a familiar place. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break and talk about the building blocks of where it does Spain, Basque country and our executive director, Aaron Fairbanks, Great. even listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org. We'll be right back.
Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Jonah Miller and Nate Adler of Huertas, a wonderful Basque restaurant in the East Village that has been there for a short period or a long period. We're not sure. It's still, <laughs> It confuses us as well. It feels yeah. like the longest and shortest 10 months of my yeah. life, for sure. <laughs> um, let's talk about our executive director, Erin Fairbanks, and her influence on you. Yeah, so I... Um the first station I ever worked and was ever trained on was by uh, Aaron, uh, a young cook. Um, and I had, I had worked in kitchens at Chanterelle and actually Gramercy Tavern and a place called Nice Batan, but never sort of held down a station. Um, so I guess I was probably about 18 at this point and working at, uh, at Savoy. Um, and Aaron was a, was a cook there and trained me. And did a, uh, hopefully, I think she did a strong, strong job and, you know, it's all about accountability, and she definitely held me yeah. accountable. And she had come from you know a really interesting background of working at Zingerman's, and um, you know it was just the right of, um, amount of uh, the balance of patience and also uh, aggressiveness when necessary. But uh, yeah, I, I remember those days fondly. Excellent. It's all it's all connected in some way. It is. I mean, there, we are lucky sort of have a place now where people can come visit us because there's so many people who you know we've we've learned from um, and now they know where uh, if they want to say hi where to find us yeah well let's talk about those people you learned from in spain i mean th- there were some transformative trips there that you guys took together and that impetus that what was that point where you're like it is the cider house it is these kind of dinners these large format you know multi-course things that people sit together and share this is what i want to do at huertas well i think well, one thing is that we have actually have never been to spain together and and still need to do that but um again you know f- the experience that we thought was maybe missing in new york or we could add to the scene was more of the cultural um social experience of dining dining there so pinchos um tapas bars standing milling about that's certainly you know the the most unique part of of their culture, but the, the other side of it, you know, as many cultures do or, or have occasions to sit down and have feasts, essentially. Um, and you know, it, it's more exciting for us to be able to offer more than one thing under the roof of, of where it does. And really, um, that's been a challenge as well because we do pinchos and we have a tasting menu that changes quite regularly in our back dining room. So this is adding a third a third layer, but really. Now almost is three restaurants, um, and people can come three times in a week and have a completely different, you know, the food. Sure, there'll be some reminiscent bites, but more than the food being different, which it is, um, this sort of story that we're telling and the experience they're having uh, is completely different with each meal. So what kind of story are you trying to tell with this northern region of Spain? Um, Let's first talk about the wines and ciders, which are just so distinct and, and, and so refreshing. Yeah, so uh, the wines and the beverage culture in northern Spain in general is one of distinction. It's something that the the flavors are so unique. Uh, it's something that you can't find anywhere else, and that's sort of what I sell tableside almost every night. Uh, I think the fact that we have, you know, eight ciders by the by the bottle on our list, that we have five different chacolis, which is the indigenous wine of uh, the Basque region, and then a wide array of Galician wines and Asturian. um, We even have an Asturian wine, which is very rare. Um, Lots of wines from Catalonia, but 
in general, the beverage culture is so unique uh, in, in Spain. Across Spain, we, we make one exception to go south of Madrid when we go into Sherry country in Andalusia. Um, but there's something about it that's just, it takes the influence from the sea, whether you're drinking an Albariño from Rias Baixas or you're drinking a Sherry from Jerez or you're drinking a Chacolí from the Basque country. There's something about the salinity, about the the mouth-watering aspect to it that just goes so well with food. Um, and I think the best way to experience Spanish beverage is actually to share it. It's not to have, you know, a glass of this and a glass of that, but to have a bottle of cider hit the table while you're eating a slow-roasted chicken or to have uh, a bottle of chacolí that gets poured from above your head and starts to sparkle because it's all part of an experience. Um, and I think that that's what you try when you're creating a restaurant what you're trying to do is create something that's experiential um, and with these large format dinners that's exactly what we were going for which was to recreate these experiences that we had traveling across Spain um, and pair them with something not just that's family and company but actually beverage um, and, and alcohol and that aspect of it and the service part of it too which I think uh is different than other restaurants that are providing large format experiences. I think rarely do you go to a restaurant and you get something in the middle of a table plus some cider or plus some wine. And I think, you know, we've tried to push the envelope with that as much as we can with our tasting menu as well, where we provide beverage pairings with every course. Um, yeah, we, there's never five glasses of wine for yeah. our pairings. I, mean, yeah. I think that's exciting for us to have sherry, to have cider. And, and Huertas means orchard. Um, for us... The north of Spain makes a lot more sense in New York than the south, and I think often people think of, when you think of Spain, you think of the south. You think of bullfighting and sherry and um, olives, and, and I think a lot of that Moorish Arabic influence and the sort of dry dehesa. But the north is looks a lot like the northeast of, of the U.S. and the products and the ocean. There are a lot of tie-ins, and apples being, to me, the biggest one, Asturias, all you see is apples. And as Nate was saying, we have a Asturian wine now, which is quite unusual. I think there's only six or seven um, producers in Asturias because all they drink is cider. Uh, and, you know, that's what we drank here for generations. And I don't think we can take any credit for helping to bring Sherry back because that was underway. But hopefully we're, um, you know, part of that movement to have not just serious cider from Spain, which has really just come to the U.S. in the last couple of years, but also bringing back great American cider and there's so many producers, um, you know, who have, like a dairy farm, if you realize you have milk and cows, let's try making cheese. Uh, there's so many people who grow apples now that everyone's starting to make cider, and there's some really great ones. But um, so Huertas, I lived on Caida, Huertas in Madrid, so that was sort of where the name came from, but also uh, the north versus the south. The south is agriculture, large format farming. Uh, there's an expression in the north, which is called Green Spain, that um, everyone has their, their worth, uh, sort of the, the back 40 acres. Um, everyone has a little garden, a little patch, orchard behind their house. There aren't these big farms. Uh, and there are also more cities. It's more, it's closer to the rest of Europe. Um, it's more cosmopolitan. And certainly, you know, San Sebastian and Barcelona, um, you know, to be honest, don't, as, don't feel as much like being in Spain to me as they do being in Europe. Uh, Madrid is more quintessential Spain. When you're in San Sebastian or, or Barcelona, you can walk a few blocks without hearing anyone speak Spanish. Um, you know, lots of different languages. And, um, and I think, you know, Galicia and Santiago de Compostela are 
really as much responsible for the food and beverage as anywhere in the Basque country. But um, for us, the uh, connection that you know the whole world has with Basque food and this idea of really they take food more seriously there as seriously as anywhere in the world and uh, it's a little bit easier to tell the story just about boss food but to us it's a little bit broader than just that yeah the dishes that you have on you know the the cider house dinners um obviously serious technique serious product but it's 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 light and playful food at the same time too uh the asadillo i think mm-hmm. is the first dish that hits a table can you talk about that dish specifically and maybe the progression of what happens during these dinners. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's one of the fun things for us and, and for me especially is that we're we're not experts in Spanish food necessarily. We're becoming experts, but, um, you know, I could have, I knew more about Italian food going into this than Spanish, certainly. So it's a lot more rewarding to open a place, uh, maybe not for our guests per se, but um, something I've come to learn is, you know, what, what excites us, what excites me is going to trickle down and have the best results for the restaurant. So in having a restaurant where we're able to every day learn about a new dish or discover a new dish. And it doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to even eat that dish in Spain, but to open a vintage Spanish cookbook and stumble across something. So the asadilla is something that Nate actually had um, when he was in Spain. I think when you're at Casamingo in Madrid, which is yeah. an Asturian spot. Um, so when I was at in Madrid, I guess, researching and vacationing, uh, one of my former uh, classmates in high school actually is living in Madrid. And I hit her up on Facebook, and I was like, hey, Daphne, is there anything uh, I should see out here? Do you want to hang out? And she was so delighted to have somebody from New York come visit, and she showed me around the town, uh, took me to only Sherry Bar, took me to uh, a couple of different cocktail bars just so I could get my my bearings and actually help me work through the beverage program uh, at Huertas um, before I had even stumbled upon any Spanish uh, literature on that subject and she took me to a place called Casamingo which was an Asturian uh, restaurant in Madrid and what they have uh, in the traditional fashion is slow roasted or spit roasted chicken Um, and really all the only other thing that they serve there is house made sausages and this dish called asadillo and some uh, cheese and meats but this dish was basically um, ventresca which is tuna belly um, that they make with uh, in a salad with soft boiled eggs and olives and this uh, relish of piquillo peppers and onions and I presented that as something that I thought would be really cool to go with uh, Sturian Cider House dinners and Jonah embraced that and then made it his own. Yeah, but we've we've tweaked a little bit. I think uh, it's heavy food in that part of the world and um, that was when we wanted to lighten up to start the meal. So instead of having tuna belly, we have um, house smoked trout and you know to and some pickled onions and olives. And then as well, take the after we smoke the trout, we take the skin and dry it out and then fry it. So there's these chips to. It's one of my favorite. Um, I mean, I love that texture of crispy fish skin, but it, it felt so Ashkenazi, so appetizing <laughs> shop of the Lower East Side. Yeah, if, if there weren't a, a slew of other uh, people opening that kind of place yeah. right now, we would be <laughs> enticed because you know we we uh, we grew up on the Upper West Side of New York of Manhattan, so uh, we're quite familiar with the, the Zabar's uh, Fairway Citarella scene. Yeah, another what seems like common dish tortilla espanol is 
neither a tortilla nor an omelet. It's it's well, it's a, so tortilla, and this is a sort of thing that um, you know less so, but we have sort of an obligation to uh, educate our guests on the difference between Latin food and Spanish food, and to sort of help. Um, steer away from that confusion, but the the one thing they do have in common is is the shape, and I think they both both come from torta, um, which is like cake. So they're both round, and and that's where um, the name derives from. But it's not uh, a Latin style tortilla, and it's it's um, most like a frittata, I would say. And I think the biggest difference between that and a frittata is in Spain, and even now, it's quite unusual for ovens to be in homes. So it's something that traditionally is cooked on a stovetop. And actually, is uh, a bit tricky, technically speaking, because you cook ha- halfway and then flip it onto a, a plate and slide it back into the pan. And to be perfectly honest, uh, we don't do that at where it's us. It's kind of a pain <laughs> in the ass, and it's messy, and you're going to have plates covered in runny eggs all over the kitchen. Um, and we have modern uh, conveniences like combination ovens, where you can set a certain amount of steam and dry heat and make a damn good tortilla like that. Yeah, uh, and that's a dish. Also, we you know they're. Our restaurants that serve it just as we do are close to it in Spain, but more often than not in Spain, it's a huge omelet that's made once or twice a day in a restaurant and sits out at a bar in room temperature and inherently is quite dry and um, filled with lots and lots of potatoes because it has something you can slice and it's not going to run out. Um, not sorry, The eggs won't run out. Um, hopefully they'll run out of product and make a fresh yeah. one, but uh, we serve ours fresh and a la minute and it is runny and hopefully you break into it and it's sort of oozing and custardy yeah plus as a restaurant tour in new york we have something called doh where you know you have to tweak these these ideas and these uh, you know recipes every once in a while to be compliant but yes. I, I love the personalized aspect of getting you know that cast iron at the table tortilla española right there and just yeah in you know, much the same way that you can't have a, a meal in you know much of if not all of asia without a bowl of rice the spanish table's incomplete without a tortilla i mean we're going to switch the large format dinners that we do and it's quite possible that you know tortilla will stick around for most of them because it really is um the most commonly in food in spain along with jamon but yeah. the, you know they're not eating pie every day so um, obviously this meal would be incomplete without how do you say it fabada fabada but my life was also incomplete until fabada <laughs> So this is how I can tell if someone knows what they're talking about. The chicken is good chicken, certainly. It's really good chicken. But, um, you know, there are quite a few places that serve good chicken in New York. The more exciting part of this meal is the fabada. Um, and it's beans, which might not be exciting. But we make the uh, the chorizo that goes into it. We make the bacon that goes into it. And we make the morcilla, the blood sausage. So from our perspective, you know, when we send that dish out, there's a lot more work that goes into it. And... Um, uh, you know, it's more of an achievement, so to speak, to to hopefully have, you know, I think we're making some of the best chorizo that I've had. Um, and the morcilla is, this is the first time that I ever made morcilla. It was for this, this dinner. Um, and this is a very typical Asturian morcilla, which is atypical in that it's onions. It's mostly onions. Yeah. Um, and morcilla is blood sausage. So it is. Not- mm-hmm. And it, there's blood sausage all over the world. Yeah. And even within Spain, there's many types of blood sausage. In the south, you'd see it with lots of rice. And, and rice is um, grown in the south of Spain, not in the north. Um, but in, in Asturias, it's almost 10 parts onions to blood. Um, 10 parts onion, one part blood. So it really is sort of a starter blood sausage. It's sweet and mild. And... Um, you know, really rounds out 
these beans, which, you know, it's a, it's a ve- beans are a vehicle to eat these delicious sausages. Yeah, and they are delicious, and I've had lots of different blood sausages around the world from Morcia's to, you know, black puddings. And what was so great about this one, I think, was the texture. You know, usually it's it's compounded with rice and gets a little dry and gritty, like you were explaining, uh, you know, tortillas. Um, but this one just was so much more lush and like the perfect amount of warming spices. It just was such a heartwarming dish. Um, yeah, the warming spice, I was just reading about the dish and um, how it was first served or first written about when the uh, Asturians were the the people because all the regions of Spain were different kingdoms at that time that defeated the Moors as they were approaching in, in 711. Um, but all those warming spices are inherently Moorish influence. So I guess they, you know, defeated them, but then uh, took the influence of some of the, the cinnamon and cloves that uh, they, you know, would have brought to the, that part of the world. We were talking about chocolate, and I don't want to, you know, not talk about the performative aspect again, uh, pouring from up high so it aerates i kind of liken it to the keg stand of wines because it it, it kind of it's one of those takes a village to actually you know take part in um but you were also pouring one of my favorite one what is it the isategi isategi yeah so that's a that's a basque cider yeah um and they actually pour cider and chocolate in the same fashion because it's naturally fermented the the apples are in the spanish and basque style cider so Literally, what they do is they take apples and they let them rot, and then they press them and put them into a bottle. Um, so there's no secondary fermentation um, like there is in a lot of American ciders, and as a result, it's still. That being said, because of the sort of funkiness of it, uh, in order to make it more palatable, they pour it from a high point in order to spur up these bubbles, and the idea is actually that they want you to shoot it. So you're supposed to pour two ounces you shoot it and then you pour another two ounces so that it's fresh and bubbly yeah, yeah. when you drink and it. And you, meaning us and not the oh, guests. Yes. I mean, but in Spain, they don't let you pour your own cider. You have to watch the bottle on the table and look at the server and hope that they come over and pour <laughs> you your next sip. Yeah. Um, but it really, it's theatrical. You know, it looks, you're at, you're at a bullfight. You know, they turn their back to you, they look away from the glass and they spill half the cider on the floor, but it's so dirt cheap over there. I don't know if I ever told you this. I, before we opened, I got um, coffee with a third generation of Asphalt Cider family, um, English cider. We were saying how they just let the apples rot. So he was an expert on cider, and we were talking about Spanish cider. And he sort of admired the product but said, you know, it's refreshing. For them, they work hard to, like, craft a palatable cider. The Spanish just let it rot. There's, no, there's nothing involved. There's no process. You know, the people... They're not doing anything, so it's almost unfair. You know, their style is to let it rot, and we've spent generations trying to make a balanced, um, you know, I think sweet cider. Um, but it really is something that is quite unusual, um, and you know, for for us, very fun to serve because it's not what people expect. It's not woodchuck cider. Yeah. Um, I also think it's really cool to see uh, how things have transformed since we opened in terms of beverage and. I remember very vividly at the beginning when we were opening the restaurant and tasting hundreds of wines and ciders while the site was under construction um, on a piece of cardboard uh, when it was freezing cold out. And John was like, we need to have cider. We need to have cider. We need to have a lot of cider. And I was like questioning him as to whether the whether New Yorkers would, would get around to it. 
And I think we hit it at just the right moment because there's this new resurgence of cider. It's actually the largest growing sector in the alcohol industry right now, to my knowledge. Um, that and things like fortified wines, which we're also um, doing a lot of in the restaurant. And we started out with five ciders on our list, and then it started to grow, and we started to change them. We started to put them on the pairing in the uh, tasting menu, and now it's you know the main event along with the fabata and the chicken in these large format dinners and it's something that we want to continue to grow and uh, nurture as a an area of that beverage list yeah i mean i think doing the the chicken dinner the fabata like a lot of the impetus was we wanted to highlight cider and also highlight a region of northern spain that wasn't the boss country to to show sort of there's a lot more to spain i mean to the north than san sebastian and pinchos Um, and i think you know in the future the, the large format meals could certainly head a little further west to Galicia. And um, there's a lot of, sort of unexplored territory in the sense of what's being served in New York. Yeah. And there's a lot more to you guys than your young age. There's such maturity and not just the way you speak about, you know, the conceptualization of Huertas, but of that region of exploring and, and progressing this cuisine to a point where... Yeah, Ten man, months uh, will seem like nothing. I think that is, you know, one of the one of the reasons that, that we're doing Spanish is this opportunity to kind of be a flag bearer, to be, um, you know, sure. At sometimes I feel like a fraud because my Spanish, I speak Spanish only okay, and guests will come from Spain and come up to the pass and want to chat with me, and um, sometimes I know what they're talking about, and sometimes I don't. But uh, you know, regardless of how well we speak Spanish and how much time we've spent there. Um, I think we really are adding a bit of Spain that are, you know, is still hard to find in this country. Yeah. I'm also glad that, you know, these dinners happens on Wednesday nights, correct? That you're adding another day. Sunday reservations will soon be available. Yeah. So we're going to be opening actually seven days a week starting on February 8th. Um, we found that, you know, in that neighborhood in the East Village, there's an opportunity, especially with all the industry people that we've seen coming by that say, hey, you know, my day's off for Sunday, Monday, and this is the only day off I had, so I came by, and we want to be able to turn it into a space where industry people can come and have these large format experiences every Sunday night um, and come in Monday night for a tasting menu as well. Um, and we're really excited to be to be opening our doors for yeah. another couple of days. And I think I've, I've always liked places that do a Sunday supper. I think it's a really nice idea of, like, here's a simple, straightforward, something I can go, you know, I've... There's been many a Sunday where at 2 p.m. I'm talking to my parents. Um, where sh- what should we do tonight? Like we don't want to, um, we don't want a long tasting menu, or we don't want to trek out to Flushing. But what can we do? That would be you know simple and fun. And um, you know this when we started doing this a few weeks ago, it felt natural. Like when we open Sunday, this is what we have to do Sunday. Um, it'll be you know, the perfect balance of fun and simple, and you know certainly meant to bring a group together and. Um, I think four to six is achievable. You know, it's not like a, a large one where you have to have 10 people to come to do the dinner. And I, I don't normally talk about the economics of dining out, but this is a steal. I mean, this is one of the best deals in New York right now. How, how much does it cost for four to six people to be fed? So it's $150 for up to six people um, with two bottles of cider. Currently, so you get all the chicken, uh, enough to feed six with the asadillo, tortilla, and fabada. Uh, two bottles of cider for one hundred fifty dollars. Um, 
as we expand into other large format experiences, it might fluctuate a little bit here or there. But the idea is really to have people come in and have that really valuable experience and feel like they left, you know, full and satisfied and happy. Yeah, and to be perfectly frank, on Wednesdays we're offering it at 6.30 and 9.30. So we're not, um, you know, offering it at 8 p.m. at the center of dinner service. And hopefully it's an opportunity for us to pass some value on to guests who can join us at the beginning of the evening or at the end of the evening when, you know, we might have a table that's not filled. And, you know, we're not uh, the first ones to use that model. I think um, Momofuku up the street uh, has been doing it for years quite successfully. So in, in a lot of ways this is one of the more unoriginal things that we've done. We were taking a meal from... Asturias. Uh, we're not creating it necessarily, and the idea of large format, you know, we didn't create that either. But um, you know, we're very comfortable with the idea of it not being creative. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. This is something we're sort of taking some tried and true practices and um, just honing them and making them our own. It's wonderful to see at your young age too that you have humility. So thank you for that. And if you haven't booked your dinners at Huertas, jump on Wednesdays and now Sundays. Just a wonderful meal all around. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, Nate. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.